Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just ahead on the program, our series celebrating Atlanta's oldest watering holes, Cheers, checks in with the 43-year-old drinking, dining, and dancing establishment, Johnny's Hideaway. Also on the way, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment, as well as our curated list of family-friendly Halloween weekend activities. But first, in 2001, civil rights icon Ambassador Andrew Young and Martin Luther King III founded Bounce TV, the first free broadcast network targeted towards an African-American audience. The network offers original content, popular documentaries, live sports, and classic movies. One of the original shows that just premiered this fall is called Finding Happy. Lois recently spoke with Bounce TV's Chief Marketing Officer, Keisha Taylor, as well as Kendra Joe, the showrunner for Finding Happy. Taylor began by explaining why Ambassador Young and Martin Luther King III wanted to start a broadcast network tailored towards African Americans. Ambassador Young and Martin Luther King III have always been advocates for equity and access. And so when Bounce was launched in 2011, There were only a handful of networks for African-Americans, and they were all on cable, meaning that people had to pay to have access to them. And so there was really a tremendous void for Black viewers, especially since about 25% of African-American homes did not subscribe to pay TV at the time. Bounce filled this void, and it became the first ever free and over-the-air network designed for Black audiences. And so I really believe that Ambassador Young and Mr. King were instrumental in helping Bounce get created. And we are certainly very proud that they are among the founders of Bounce. I can imagine. How has Bounce evolved over the last decade? We've seen a lot of evolution here at Bounce, largely in our program and content offering. And so we like to think that we're very different from other networks in the space. We have so many amazing stories to tell as a a people. And so we're very thankful for all of the other networks who are also dedicated to telling our story. But with Bounce, we're really interested in telling stories that appeal to multi-generational audiences where viewing can be a shared experience. And we double down on our commitment to that type of programming and really our original programming, which brings great and amazing talent like Kendra Joe to us to lead that effort. Yes. Kendra, you are the showrunner for this wonderful original series, a new series on Bounce, Finding Happy. Would you describe the show? Sure. Basically, Finding Happy, and I think it's something I always prided myself. I wrote all 10 episodes, and one of the things that when I approached the the story, I said, you know, I want everybody to go through the Finding Happy filter, because basically it's something that we all go through which is um, Yaz, our lead character, gets to the age of 36 on her 36th birthday. And actually one of the co-creators, Angela Wells, had talked about there's this age of reckoning. She's also been a psychologist, a practicing psychologist. 
And she said, there's an age of reckoning where we get to an age, it may not be 36, but within that window where we start to think about our lives a little more like, wait a minute, <laughs> we start to take an inventory of the things that maybe societal standards that we think we should have met, we haven't met yet. And, and Yaz is one of those individuals who hasn't checked those boxes. Like, it's kind of like realizing you've been asleep behind the wheel and according to your parents, according to, you know, even your schooling, you should have got the man or the career and had the kids, the family. And she has none of those things. She's an assistant at a radio station that's still operating in terrestrial radio. And I'm sure you all can even attest to how even radio is going through a finding happy filter itself, trying to now compete with digital streaming and all of that. And so she's kind of waking up on her birthday and realizing like, wait, I, I, I haven't gotten these things and I don't have this and everybody wants to celebrate my birthday and I don't, it's a, it's a blurring reminder of what I haven't accomplished. And so basically we're just, we're, go, we're going with her on this journey of discovering what really makes her happy. You know, she hasn't really focused on herself and some, some of us can attest to how we've put others needs and desires before our own. And so Yaz has kind of come into that realization within this show of what are the things that truly make her happy and what does she have to do to, to pursue those things? And if, even if she acquires those things, you know, do they really make you happy? You know, they may make you happy for a moment, but is it really peace that she's desiring? So that's pretty much like an overarching, you know, plot of the story. I think some people might call it a dramedy yes there's a whole lot of humor and and knowing that you wrote all 10 episodes I have to credit your sense of humor and wit <laughs> because rest in pity R.I.P. is is yeah. what <laughs> yes thinks her birthday cake should read although she doesn't want the birthday cake <laughs> And there are these wonderful touches you have with showing how texts are communicated, you know, just flashing on the screen. It's not all typical sitcom, set up the joke and get to the punchline. Yes, a situation is relatable to many young black women and men, I would say many young men and women of all types. In what ways would it resonate especially with an Atlanta audience? Well, one of the things that I definitely was excited about was finding out that we were going to be able to do the show in Atlanta because I'm from the South. And I just love just Southern everything, you know, like, and I just feel like Black women from the South are just a special being in themselves. And I just truly, 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 truly wanted, and I've always said, I've always wanted to tell stories that are based in the South because typically, and, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but typically whenever stories are told from the South, it's told with this, you know, it's either slavery or civil rights, you know, it's it's never a case where it's a black woman leading a Southern comedy. And I just was like, man, this would be so amazing to show, you know, the little inter the little intricacies of like Southern life and what that's like and the sayings that we have and how like I deal with different motifs throughout the show. Food is a huge motif throughout the show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a huge part of growing up in the South, comfort food, you know? And and also the fact that Jamila, her sister cousin, that they live together and her as well are doing this whole thing of like, well, I'm not going to eat that food anymore. You know, I'm going to eat clean now, you know, eat better. And, and the mothers are still rooted in the, you know, idea of food being much about comfort. You know, also hair is a huge motif in this show because Atlanta is known for being the black hair capital of the world. You know, the Bronner Brothers shows. I remember growing up, my mother, she was also a beautician growing up and when I was growing up and we wanted to go to Atlanta to go to the shows. I was at their shows growing up. And so that was one of the things, man, when I found out it was Atlanta, I was super excited to tell some of those nuanced stories that we typically haven't seen, you know, in, in previous shows that are, you know, led around Black women. And while it 
lands so beautifully within the experiences of Southern black women. You mentioned intergenerational appeal and also interracial appeal. I mean, I'm delighted watching this show, and there's a whole lot to relate to. And it goes back to supporting the idea that, I think, when you touch on universal themes, you can be specific. I know that's my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's from Lorraine Hansberry. She said, the universal is in the specific. How does finding happy showcase diversity within Black life and experience? Well, you know, it's funny what you said prior to that. Um, I was a huge John Hughes fan growing up. <laughs> and John Candy, I mean, I, I used to just, man, I used to just love them. And I remember like watching John Hughes stories and just seeing like, it was always from a white perspective, but I, I didn't, I was looking at it like, wow, I could still relate to it. Like you said, the universal themes. And I just love the fact that, you know, watching the breakfast club, watching pretty in pink and 16 candles and things of that nature. I'm like, man, they're just being, it's like a slice of life. Mm -hmm. And, and that was what I really, really prided myself with finding happy. It's, it's, a, it's funny, you know, as of late, a lot of what we've seen as far as from the black perspective or from black narratives, I guess you could say, it's been a lot of trauma. And I'm talking about news, not even just narrative space, but even in news, you know, with the BLM, the Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. And it was so important to me that I was like, you know, I, there is that perspective. And some of the shows that we watch do have a lot of those, you know, stories laced within, but I just wanted to show a, a balance of well, maybe there's a different side of our life that's just a slice of life. You know, I learned that from Toni Morrison, where she said to remove the gaze, like don't make it about what some the oppression of someone else. Let people just enter into this space and just see what it's like on a regular Tuesday. You know what it's like for these individuals because it's like when I was watching The Breakfast Club and it was detention on a Saturday. That movie is about one day you know and you meet these different individuals who are all dealing with detention and they come from different walks of life and I'm thinking the same thing like when I'm watching something like even like fresh off the boat which is about a Korean family that's you know new to America and they're getting acclimated in America like the things that they're going through even I'm relating to that as well and I'm like wouldn't it be amazing to just show us to just have a show like Finding Happy, where people are going through things that we all can relate to. And maybe they look, you know, different, but they're people that we can all relate to. And whether you're Chinese, Dominican or whatever, and some of the things that I really wanted to show that, that I hadn't really seen as far as diversity was the Black mother and the Black daughter. Now, not necessarily the they have to be Black, but because I do believe this relates across the board, because I've even had Caucasian, you know, friends who said like, my mama gets on my nerves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mama doesn't know how to like, I'm now an adult, like you don't have to raise me anymore. And if you do, you didn't do a good job, <laughs> you know? And so just seeing even Yaz and her mother and the things that are about them that are so similar that they would definitely say they're not, but they are so similar. They're wanting happy just in their own way. And, you know, I, I just, I just really prided myself on showing even black men a different way. You know, all the black men here have careers. They have things that they're pursuing, you know, and whether like with Porter, you may see a man who has tunnel vision when it comes to his ambition so much that he's lost his family. He's, you know, had a divorce because of it. Um, and then you see Dexter who wants to just get his CDL license and, you know, be able to take care of, his family because he grew up in foster homes. So he really, really desires to have a family. Or you see somebody like Sean, who yes, he's womanizing and hard to keep, you know, committed, but he just doesn't want to lose. He prides himself in his fitness gym and, you know, being that typical personal trainer in Atlanta. But I just really, and, and of course the mothers, you know, with, with Joe who loves her food, I really wanted to deal with and, and, and this is, I hope this is not a spoiler, but I really want to deal with for next season, 
Like we see that Joe loves food, but to what extent is it costing her health? There's a part in the story where she checks her sugar so that she can eat things that are sweet. She just wants to make sure her sugar is low enough so she can eat the sweets. And that's something that I've seen in my family. And I really wanted to just kind of like bring light to those little things like that. But yeah, that yeah. Probably was a long, a long response, but yeah. No, lots of great things. And indeed, you you address serious issues like diabetes and foster families, all within the context of finding happy as a comedy. Keisha, would you tell us about some of the other original series Bounce TV has produced? Absolutely. So we are we're we're committed to delivering high quality content around the clock. And whether that's original programming or acquired programming, that's what's most important to us. And, and again, it's why we've enlisted, you know, talent like Kendra to help us to tell our stories. We're focused on diversity in front of and behind the cameras. And we're doing that with original programming like Finding Happy, but also um, with Johnson, both of which are backed by Cedric the Entertainer and Eric Rohn from A Bird and a Bear. And so Johnson explores the life of four Black men who have been friends since childhood, but it's also a reflection of the lives they lead and the challenges and hopes and dreams that they're achieving and, and the things that they have to do to get there. And so we have original movies and classic favorites like Love Jones and The Best Man. We also just introduced a morning lineup of syndicated shows with Sherry Shepard and Karamo. So really, Lois, we, we want to become a meeting ground for Black conversations and creators, and we are committed to doing that through our content. Keisha Taylor, Bounce TV's Chief Marketing Officer, and Kendra Joe, the showrunner of their original series, Finding Happy, speaking with City Lights host, Lois Reitzis. New episodes of Finding Happy come out on Saturday evenings through mid-November and can also be streamed on the Brown Sugar app. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, the next installment of Cheers, our series that celebrates Atlanta's oldest watering holes. Today, featuring the 43-year-old dance hall, Johnny's Hideaway. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes. In for Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. Atlanta's landscape is constantly changing, and our city has a reputation for embracing new development. At a time when we most often hear about older taverns shuttering their doors, let's celebrate the bars that have beaten the odds and survived for decades. It's time now for our series, Cheers, a toast to Atlanta's oldest and most iconic watering holes. Dancing, dining, and cocktails. Those are the three ingredients that have made Johnny's Hideaway on Roswell Road successful for the last 43 years. The retro nightclub has long outlasted many a Buckhead establishment, and the club's roots are still represented with its current owner, Chris Doria. Chris joins me now via Zoom to talk about liquor, lounges, and longevity. Chris, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. So let's start out with how you are still representing the roots of the original owner. Let's talk about how Johnny's Hideaway got started. 
Okay. Originally, it was the namesake, Johnny Esposito, had two partners that opened in 1979, and they the three of them didn't get along. And so my father became one of Johnny's partners in 81, and 98, he retired. And since then, it's been, it was my father, another gentleman, Waxy Gordon, who passed, and myself. And I bought out Waxy before he passed, and then I bought out my father uh, almost 15 years now. And what made you decide to move over to Johnny's Hideaway? Because my understanding is you worked in the bar and restaurant industry for a long time prior. Yes, I was uh, graduated college and I wanted to take a year off uh, before I continued with my education. And my father said, that's a terrible idea. And I said, well, I want to do it. So I went to work <laughs> at a bar where used to be uh, a bar called The Spot, where the fish market is on Far Road. And I worked there. And I liked it. And so then I went to work at American Pie and I was general manager there. And then he tried to convince me to come to Johnny's Hideaway. And I told him absolutely not. But, you know, what? <laughs> you know, they say blood is thicker than water. So he talked me into it. And so I came to the Hideaway in 97 and been there since. So I could imagine that it was hard for you to leave American Pie, considering that was probably closer to your demographic at the time. It was really hard just because, uh, well, I don't know how this is going to sound, but to be GM in American Pie back then, I mean, we would go, I'd go out with some of my staff or whoever, if I had a date or something, you could go anywhere in the city, any other bar, you'd be there two, three hours, your tab would be $8 to give the, give whoever the bartender was a 50 and call it. A, and just, it was just, you got treated really, really differently as GM then. And then, like you said, then I went to the hideaway and at that point in 97, the average age was probably 65 to 70. So I was 29 at the time and I was GM and just, just full of, you know, blank and vinegar coming from American pie, had this huge ego and just walking into this place. What did I get myself into? Everybody here is a thousand years old. This is just so boring that there's no fun. There's no, you know, like you said, American pie, everybody was in their twenties. So it was, you know, right in my wheelhouse, but you know, at the hideaway back then, everybody was so much older. And now when I walk in at night, it's, excuse me, sir. Hi, sir. Excuse me, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I, I'm not that old. I'm not that old. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how age and perspective change over oh, it's, the years? it's so funny. Well, the hideaway's clientele and reputation has also changed over the years because as you mentioned, it used to skew a lot older. How did it organically start aging down? Two big events that really changed the uh, trajectory of of the hideaway was when the when the streets of Buckhead originally you remember when they started construction on them and then they went bankrupt because of the yeah. and the recession so that started you know they came up with all those problems made up some of them to close all those bars those bars were fine there weren't they just needed more police activity and and you know just some cleaning up so they finally closed them so all those young people had nowhere to go. So they just kind of migrated to the hideaway. And then the, the biggest other part that has really been a good feeder for us is the Ivy. You know, when it first opened, I said, oh, there's no way this place is going to last. You know, you can't you can't put a young a young college bar, you know, between Hal's and the hideaway. And it's been uh, it's been a great feeder. You know, the people get a little they want to get their really start dancing. And then they kind of walk over from the Ivy to the hideaway. So. So what would you say your age demographic is currently? Uh, I would say after 11 o'clock, it's probably 25 to 40. Um, but then before that, you know, we still ladies night is still on Wednesday. So we still get the varied clientele, but some of our older, it's funny if I go to, there's a couple other establishments I'll go to just to see what other places are doing. And when I walk in and I see some regulars, some people that have been hideaway regulars for a long time, they go, uh, uh, I'm just having one here and, and then I'm going to Johnny's. I'm, we're not, a, we're not a couple. You don't have to tell me why you're, why you're cheating on me at this other place. I'm not mad, but you know, we have lost uh, some percentage of regulars that were a little, that are a little bit older that just don't like the, you've got too many, Chris, you've got too many kids in here. Get these kids out of here. They're not being respectful. I, I'm sorry. I can't throw out a hundred people that are in their twenties because you know, they're being too loud or too, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's kind of been, you know, unfortunately that's the part I don't like. I hate to lose, but you know, when somebody's gets to a certain age and they don't want to be 
bumped into in a crowded bar, you know, that's just, that's unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. I don't think they aged out as much as it got, which is good for me, but it just got so busy Wednesday through Saturday. You know, it, it used to be, you could have, when I was still working the front door, I did the, for the first 13 years I was there, they would, you'd have an occasional Wednesday or Thursday night where, oh, it's a slow night. Well, I'm, the checkbook's not going to be happy that it's a slow night, but it's kind of nice to kind of relax and just kind of coast through the night. Well, that's not the case anymore. I mean, luckily for me, it's crowded every night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's crowded. So for the, for an older clientele, I mean, I don't, I don't go in there on Fridays or Saturdays past. I usually am there and I leave by 11 and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in there on Saturday. It's just too crowded for me, you know, and I'm 54. Now, 10 years ago, I'd love to be, oh, be on the dance floor and just mounds of people and just craziness. But I just think it's, you know, you go to a place that's maybe a little closer to your house, you have a couple of drinks, you dance a little bit, and it's not as crowded. So, you know, it's more relaxing. You can actually talk to the bartender, talk to whoever's sitting around you. Yeah, that's that that's makes, a lot that of makes perfect sense. I didn't realize quite how consistently crowded Johnny's has become. Yeah, I'd love to... Uh, and my next trick I have to try and pull off is to get more space somehow to where there's not as long a line on a Fridays and Saturdays, because that's the one thing if I'm driving by on Friday or Saturday night, if I'm not in there and I see the line, you know, and I'll text one of my managers and I'll have him mark what the line is and he'll say, oh, you know, an hour and six minutes was the wait, you know, to get in on Saturday. Oh, I mean, that's just some bar owners would say, oh, that's great. That's a good problem to have. Right. But it's a problem I don't want to have. I'd rather than be inside having a good time rather than go to social media and say, oh, I tried to go to that hideaway place and, you know, I waited an hour to get in or what, whatever, you know, that's right. not, you know. Well, let's but give it, people advice for a second. If someone doesn't want to wait an hour to come in, what time would you recommend that they show up? On on Fridays, generally before 1030 and on Saturdays before 930 is your guarantee. There's an outlier every now and then, but generally a line rarely starts before 930 on a Saturday, but that is the craziest night crowd wise. Understandably. And you are still open during the day, right? Yes. We open at 11 o'clock Monday through Friday and noon on Saturday and Sunday. And the kitchen opens at 11 a.m. Monday through Friday. So what are your regulars like during the day shift? (laughs) Uh, Most of them are, most of them are retired professional men. There's a, there's a core group of about 10 to 12 that kind of rotate in and out. One gentleman's been coming since day one, Everett Hodge. He won't mind me saying his name. Uh, His wife brings him, his wife picks him up and he's been coming seven days a week since it opened. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the oldest and most distinguished regular. And then there's the other guys kind of rotate in and out. They, you know, they complain about the soup's too cold or my burgers overcooked or this beer's not cold enough. I mean, just, you know, they, they feel like they're at home because they're there so much during the day. So they complain to the day bartenders about anything. And those, that group sits at the tables near the dance floor. And then there's a group of maybe 20 regulars that rotate in and out that sit at the bar during the day. So speaking of your bartenders, do you have anyone that's been with you an exceptionally long time? Yes. My bar manager, Nancy, has been all in. She left She left to run a Chinese restaurant down the street for maybe a year or two, but she's 20, 20 years plus. Super impressive. So let's talk about the establishment. You mentioned the tables by the dance floor. Paint a picture for us of what it's like inside Johnny's. You walk in, it's it's kind of, you're walking into a set from the 70s. Everything's red, everything's brown wood. So you walk in, if you want to sit at the bar, there's two bars, both to the left of the club. The front bar, there's 26 red bar seats that are in front of a wood bar that has a red carpeted bar rail on it. On the bottom, if you want to put your feet on the bar, you're putting your feet on a red carpeted bar rail on the bottom for your feet. The carpet's red. If you don't want to sit at the bar, there's tables on the front part of the building. Almost half of them have Tiffany lamps from the 70s that are over each table. Each high top table has got a red footrail for you that's carpeted. The column that the tabletop sits on is red carpeted. The tabletop is brown wood. The drink rail around the table is red carpet. And then you get to the dance floor, which is a 18 by 20 parquet dance floor. Then on the other side, there's another set of tables. And then to the left is the back bar that has 25 seats, same configuration, 
carpeted foot rail, carpeted bar top. And then if you need to go to the restroom, you walk down an old that old wood paneling lines the hallway. I love that you've kept so much of the vibe from the 70s there. Yeah, we kind of operate with the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And even though it's funny, it's more expensive for me to keep doing everything in red carpet and keep the bar stools and the chairs in red carpeted material. It's more expensive to do that than it would be to just change them all out for something less expensive. But then it wouldn't, I don't think it'd have the same feel. So what about decorations? Is there anything about Johnny's inside that people always seem to comment on? If you walk in the front door, if you don't, if you don't walk right in, if you, if you have a moment to stand there for a second, and you look up, I'd see the most commented one is we have this three, we have three or four, four walls of celebrity pictures, celebrities that have been in the club. And the one that's the most prominent is uh, George Clooney is right when you walk in the second door. And if people stop there, it's always, Oh, George Clooney was here. Yes. <laughs> but that's, that's the one that get that's the thing we get the most comments on would be the picture of George Clooney. Well, let's name drop some other celebrities. Who else have you had? Uh, Jim Carrey was there. Uh, Christina Applegate, Jenna Fisher, Steve Martin, Vander Holyfield, Jason Sudeikis, J.K. Simmons, Clint Eastwood. Uh, I had a list in my phone at one point. That's a pretty A-list right there. And with Atlanta becoming, or becoming, Atlanta has been such a movie mecca. Has Johnny's been pegged for location shooting at all? Quite a bit. And it's, it's so funny because I don't think they understand the bar business in Atlanta because it's, they always want to argue with me about, well, we just need you to close for Friday and Saturday. So that, that always, that's all that always just strikes me as humorous, but we filmed five movies there. So if they're willing to do a a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, that's something I'm open to, but I, I won't mess with. I, I don't want to rock the rock the boat on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. That makes sense. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Chris Doria, owner of the 43-year-old dance hall, Johnny's Hideaway. Do you think that there's any particular drinks or menu items that people always associate with the hideaway? No, I think they more think about how they feel the next day from being at the hideaway the night before more of what I hear. If we call it the walk of shame every Saturday and Sunday, there's probably 10 to 15 people that come in once we open for retrieval credit cards, cell phone, sunglasses, hat, left my jacket, something. And, uh, they're, Oh, I don't feel too good. I left here at, uh, I think two, you know, and it's, and they always look around. Wow. It seems a lot smaller during the day. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, what time do you leave? Uh, I don't I don't remember, but you know. So I think that's it's more of the next day. It's just the the strength of our of our poor. That is something. So on that same note, definitely without naming names, is there any particularly wild night that as a team you guys still talk about? Well, when Atlanta hosted the Super Bowl well, almost 4 years ago now, that was a crazy weekend. That was it was a record-setting Friday then we beat that on Saturday. Wow. That was, that was insane because there's, there's a certain limit to the establishment as a whole. There's a limit to how much that, that place can, you know, there's just, it's a size restriction, you know? So we, I didn't think we could ever get to the two numbers that we did Friday and Saturday. And when my GM, he texts me an hourly number, if I don't tap into the system remotely. And when I was getting those numbers, I said, are you kidding? Did you, did you mistype? Are you sure that's the right number? You know, yes, I checked it twice. That's the number. Whoa. Okay. So are there any particular challenges that the hideaways had to overcome in the last 43 years? I would say the recently, you know, I'm, I'm in the same, I'm a lot luckier than most, but there's still, you know, staffing issues are still, they're, they're the most prevalent now that they've been since I've, since it's, I've been there, at least in the 25, I've been there. It's tough to get, you know, somebody will come in and say, oh yeah, I want to work here. I heard the money's really good. And then after a night or two of training, oh no, this is way too much work. I didn't know it was going to be this busy. I didn't know it was going to be this hectic. It's, it's too much of a frantic pace. I guess that's been the biggest challenge. And then, uh, you know, fighting off people that want me to change Mm. the, um, you know, kind of what we call the meat and potatoes of the club, you know, the music, the glassware, the carpet, like I said, the carpet, the chairs, 
when are you going to update it? Let the DJs play new music. You need to do this. You need to do that. Why don't you have frozen drink machines? Why don't you have beer on tap? You know, they're trying to get, no, this is hot right now. Well, you know, that's fine. But, you know, I've got, I've got 43 years plus to say that, you know, we're doing something right here. So what type of music can people expect when they go? Uh, dance hits from the 60s to 90s with some, or 90s, well, 60s to 2000s now with a couple of new new songs sprinkled in here and there, but they, they're not charting at the moment. They're probably six to eight months off the charts. And once upon a time, you were known for maybe more Sinatra than anything else. There's, oh, there's st- you still get a dose of Sinatra nightly, but yes, nothing. When I first started, it was big band, shag, swing, heavy dose of Sinatra, heavy dose of Elvis Presley. And it started to, you know, as the years went by and and some of the older clientele, you know, either passed or just stopped coming in, you know, it was more and more apparent that we had to add, you know, we had to move up a little bit where we were playing big band from the forties, you know, let's put one big band song on a night and let's play some more from the fifties, you know, and then five years later, we needed to put a little more into the sixties, but by far the most popular genre is still disco. That's what the most, I talked to my DJs last week. The most requested song every night is Dancing Queen by ABBA, which is just insane to me. Yeah. (laughs) That and any Michael Jackson song, the two biggest requests they get. And that, you know, those are artists that haven't been prevalent in some time. It's never the hottest, you know, it's not Halsey. It's not Doja Cat. It's not Lady Gaga. It's not Lizzo. It's those, you know, people that come to the highway want to hear the seventies and eighties stuff. They just came from someplace that plays all contemporary music. Right. And so you mentioned the challenge of staffing, which is very common for a nightclub, and that you've had people come in because they've heard the money is really good there. Well, I heard a rumor that you have a server that once received a $5,000 tip. Is that true? That's true. This guy from out of town just asked the server, said what is actually two bartenders. Um, but ask the bartenders, what's the biggest tip you've ever gotten? And they said, you know, no, we're don't, we're not playing that game. He said, come on, come on. Don't make me, don't make me pick a number. Well, you know, no, no. And so they went back and forth for a few minutes and I finally said, you know, I had a server, give me a thousand dollars. And he said, well, I'm going to give you five times that. And, and it turned into, yeah, sure, sure. No, no, you're, you're great. You're great. Don't worry about it. So he bought the whole bar. He was sitting at back bar. He bought everybody sitting at the bar. So 25 drinks. He bought 25 drinks for everybody sitting at the bar. And then he had it. He had a few drinks himself. And then when he totaled out, he totaled it out. He totaled it and got up and walked out the door. And when they checked it, it was 5,000. That's nuts. And you said this was someone from out of town? Yes. And it was pre-COVID. So it had to be 17 or 18. I love that he started the conversation just by wanting to know what was the previously highest tip that's just a very competitive person by nature well and you know what they when i go out on my own to other places around the city every bartender that you talk to once you get to know them has a story like that everybody throughout if you bartend for any amount of time a guy or a girl at some point has asked you what's the biggest tip you ever got i don't know if it's an ego thing or oh i'm gonna beat that you know Indeed. Well, let's close out by talking about our most recent history. How did Johnny's navigate the pandemic? Well, luckily, you know, we were open very quickly, which politics aside, that was that was a blessing to me. I really politics don't matter in that from my perspective when it comes to that, that we got open quickly. Uh, I have a restaurant license because, like I said, the kitchen opens every day at 11 and it closes at 2 a.m. So we do, we do a substantial amount of food. So I have a restaurant license. So I was able to open up. We were, we were only closed about two months. So I got super lucky there and we opened with all the limitations in place and grunted through, but it was, I mean, it was, it was for about the first four months of the, I would say Mark, we closed March, we closed March 19th was our last night open and we reopened in June. And, but it was about September, October of, before I really stopped worrying. Like I, I know, I know I wasn't very fun for my wife, you know, for my wife to be around me, you know, the, the club has a pretty sizable savings account, you know, rainy day fund. And I had to tap into it pretty good. And I was starting to get a little panicky that what, you know, what if this, you know, and I think every, every small business owner had that opinion. I think in the back of their mind that what if we don't get through this, what if, right? you know, what if this is a permanent thing to where it's going to be, this is how we live life now, you know? So fortunately we got through it, but that was, 
getting through that was tough. We made a few cosmetic changes inside the club at the time. My management team did a great job. I paid everybody uh, while we were closed. And my management team did a good job of going in there uh, every day and, and, you know, cleaning up stuff, you know, painting stuff that was kind of run down, redoing a couple things. You would only notice if you, you know, are an owner and a longtime employee, but they, you know, made small changes that were, that needed to be done that we would have to close to do. Right. So able to take advantage of the time. Well, congratulations on 43 years in Atlanta. That is no easy feat. The city does not have many places that match that number. So congratulations. And thanks for keeping Johnny's Hideaway dancing and dining and full of cocktails. Oh, thank you. Chris Doria, owner of the 43-year-old Johnny's Hideaway. More information about Johnny's, as well as our Cheers series, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights music contributor H. Johnson stops by to teach us about jazz bassist Ray Brown. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been a fixture on our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. continually educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. H. recently added City Lights music contributor to his exceedingly long resume, and he joins us every other Friday to share a bit of his breadth of jazz knowledge. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. I want to talk about a bass player right now, okay? Let's take a little time out to talk about a member of the rhythm section. He was along the lines of people like other bass players like Curly Russell, Oscar Pettiford, John Clayton, Paul Chambers, Sam Jones, see Ron Carter, Buster Williams, Jaco Pastorius, Scotty LaFaro. And one of the newer ones of today who's making a name for himself, Christian McBride, but that's not who we're talking about. His name is Raymond Matthews Brown, better known as Ray Brown. That's right, Ray Brown, one of the greatest and most formidable bass players that ever lived, came to us in 1926. He was married for a minute, you know, to Ella Fitzgerald. That's the league he was in. He was an award winner, profound award winner. New jazz star, started in 1947 winning awards. And he played with every great jazz musician you can imagine, both professionally and non-professionally. He'd be in jam sessions sometimes that was never recorded, but he lent his talents to it and he made it that much better. He played with people like, oh, Bud Powell, Ben Webster, Sonny Stitt, Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, you know Louis Armstrong, Gene Harris, Stan Getz, Jerry Mulligan, young Benny Green on piano, Milt Jackson, Milt Jackson, and of course... He was part of the group that was around for a long time, the Oscar Peterson Trio. Ray Brown played with Oscar Peterson, along with Herbie Ellis on guitars at times, and then there was a a drummer. He was the kind of bass player where, although he was there backing up people like Oscar Peterson, he never got in the way. By that I mean he was part of the rhythm section, was designed to keep that power going, keep that feeling going. And you were well aware of it, but he pushed in such a way, by that I mean he accompanied Oscar in such a way that uh, just influenced Oscar, made Oscar play harder, which pleased the audience. A lot of people who would listen to Ray Brown and who heard Ray Brown weren't really listening because when he played with Oscar Peterson's trio, everyone's concentrating on Oscar Peterson until Ray takes a solo. But listen to what he did behind Oscar's playing, that pulse, that heartbeat he had going, oh, awesome. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just play something by Ray Brown. You'll see what we're talking about. How about, you know, and that's another thing. It's hard to choose something to play by this guy because everything he does is, is magnificent. It's hard to find a solo thing by him because usually, and doing my research on him, most of the stuff that's available, he's accompanying somebody. But he has a lot of solo material out there that I think we could share this particular selection with you from Ray Brown on bass. Thing called uh, a jazz standard called Things Ain't What They Used to Be. This is Ray Brown. Mm-hmm. 
WABE's H. Johnson and our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured jazz bassist Ray Brown, and you can hear the full-length version of Things Ain't What They Used To Be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's Blues Classics show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10 p.m. and then return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8 p.m. right here on 90.1 WABE. In the spirit of Halloween, we here at City Lights wanted to share a few family-friendly events in Atlanta and surrounding areas that you and yours might enjoy as you make plans for the weekend. Starting first with Pont City Market's Trick or Treating on the Roof event. This day includes rides, carnival games, and treats for kids of all ages. The Market's Ghoulish Transformation and event takes place on Halloween proper, Monday, October 31st from 12 to 5 p.m. Admission is $7, and you can find out more on the website pontcitymarket.com. Next up, a spectacular Saturday family festival with an Atlanta community favorite, Dad's Garage. The festival includes improv shows for kids, games, and a reverse haunted house where monsters will be scared by the children. We'll let the monsters tell you about the event in their own way. Hey, Dracula. Hey, werewolf. Have you heard about Spooktacular Saturday? It's Dad's Garage's frightening, family-friendly fundraising festival. Alliteration. They have face painting, crafts, comedy kids shows. What's this reverse haunted house? A haunted house where the kids scare the monsters. Oh, kids. Saturday, October 29th. One to four. At Dad's Garage. Admission is five bucks. Visit dadsgarage.com for more info. Look, a kid. <laughs> There's also going to be a bar for adults, and all attendees are encouraged to arrive in costume. More information can be found at dadsgarage.com. And next, the 1950s horror comic book, Zombie Prom, is brought back to life by Stage Door Theater with a musical comedy by John Dempsey titled Zombie Prom Atomic Edition. Joey Davala, Development Director for Stage Door Theater, tells us what's particularly thrilling about this production. It's a hilarious, fun, family-friendly opportunity for the students of the Forming Arts Academy to display all of their training and hard work with a fun, atomic 1950s musical. Zombie Prom Atomic Edition takes place three different times over the weekend, and more information can be found at Stage Door Theater ga.org. And on to Halloween fun for even the smallest ones, you can go to Boo at the Zoo, a family-friendly Halloween festival at Zoo Atlanta. There will be sample treats, kid-friendly characters, and costumes are highly encouraged. Jennifer Smith from Zoo Atlanta tells us what she finds most exciting about the event. It's Mary, not scary. I'm also looking forward to a new activity this year, a magic illusion show. And I never fail to get excited about seeing the kids in their costumes as they explore a zoo full of fun Halloween decor. Boo at the Zoo is happening this Saturday and Sunday, October 29th and 30th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The event is free for members and for children under three and free for all others if you pay general admission to the zoo. For more information, you can visit zooatlanta.org. And pivoting away from Halloween for our final announcement, the city of Hapeville is holding its fourth annual Dias de los Muertos or Day of the Dead celebration this Saturday, October 29th. The festivities include live performances, award-winning independent film screenings from Latinx filmmakers, authentic food, an art walk, murals, and a Katrina costume contest. This is a family-friendly event and is completely free to the public. Chloe Alexander has been an organizer for Hapeville's Dias de los Muertos celebration since its inception, and she says she looks forward to seeing the community enjoy the festivities. I have to say that my favorite part of this event is seeing everything come together after so many months of planning and getting to see the community really enjoy and celebrating this event together, participating in the art, and really taking it all in as an experience that they can enjoy with their friends and family.
Hapeville's Diaz de la Mortos celebration will be held at Jess Lucas Park, and the festivities begin at 5 p.m. More information can be found at hapevilledayofthedead.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll meet the ghoul next door, baker Ana Ariaga. Plus, we'll hear how penicillin takes center stage in the musical The Mold That Changed the World, on stage next week at Pullman Yards. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about Bounce TV's original Finding Happy, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you will find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans and Janine Etter are our producers, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.